Welcome everyone to the first episode of our brand new podcast, which we're calling Left, Right, Left. So the motivating factor uh, behind this show is to make politics and policy more accessible. And so this has clearly been the most divisive election cycle in our short lives, the three of us, and probably for the past few generations. So we just wanted to cut through some of that noise, um, break down current events and their importance, and try to have productive discussions despite our differences. Um, being on the far left, the left, and the right. So just to give a little background about myself, my name is Nick. I'm from Connecticut, and I'm on the ideological left. I've spent some time uh, working for a progressive member of Congress um, in an environmental nonprofit, and I currently work for the state of Montana. Hey, everyone. My name is Alex. So I'm from the West, and I have a very right-leaning ideology mixed in with some of that Western libertarianism that we are so well known for. Um, I'm from the border of California, Nevada, and Arizona, so I get kind of a slosh of all three of those politics. Um, and I feel like that's very much influenced how I look at the world. Um, Career-wise, I was a middle school English teacher, um, and before that, and currently, I've worked on campaigns and in the federal government. So definitely excited about this. And I'm Cam. Ideologically, I'm somewhere between libertarian socialism and anarcho-communism. So I'm coming at this with a rather extreme perspective. And I hope to use this platform as an opportunity to recontextualize conversations in a new way. Uh, that gets people thinking in a much more left perspective. I'm originally from New England. I'm currently uh, living and working in central Ohio uh, in the ever exciting, fast changing field of immigration law. Now that we've all introduced ourselves, uh, we're going to be talking today primarily about last week's election, focusing specifically on a handful of races, both uh, on the presidential level and a handful of Senate races. In addition to all of that, what we are looking to do is explain what might have been the motivating factor in races tipping a certain way. Certainly there were a lot of expectations, I think from uh, both parties that weren't exactly met. And uh, we, we, we want to take this and, and apply this to an understanding of where our politics are going forward. One thing that we'll be touching on toward the end is a little bit of ongoing drama in the Democratic caucus between the more moderate wing of the party and the more progressive wing of the party. And I think we're all gonna weigh in a little bit differently on how this conflict ought to be resolved, what exactly it means for the Democratic party, and uh, what, what credence there is to all the claims that are flying around on both sides of this dispute. I think without further ado, we can jump right into talking about the results from the presidential race, where as it stands right now, Joe Biden has a clear majority in the Electoral College and a strong majority in the popular vote, although no winner has yet officially been declared, a point that President Trump likes to make because he is trying to challenge the results in court to I don't know what effect. <laughs> so far, his legal challenges have been very unimpressive and almost laughed out of court. So I don't exactly know if any serious challenge is going to be able to overthrow this win. But I think we'll leave that topic to a future discussion. 
I think we wanted to lead off by talking about some of these some of these races. Yeah. So I mean, I think one of the things that is uh, clearest about this election, I, I like how you describe it, Cam. No one side, I think, was too pleased about Tuesday's election. I think yeah. that's kind of the. Uh, <laughs> I think that's kind of the signature of a good compromise is that no side is too happy with it. I mean, Democrats for now have a lead in the presidential race, although it has not officially been called, and most of the results have yet to be certified. Although uh, uh, Vice President Biden does at the moment have a pretty substantial lead um, in some of those battleground states like Pennsylvania and Georgia. Republicans were able to keep the Senate and gain ground in the House, but they weren't able to reclaim a majority. So let's say that Vice President Biden becomes President Biden. Um, they won't be able to completely halt in his tracks all of his uh, policy goals, but they can put a bit of a damper on things for him. So I think that's going to be interesting how it plays out. And also, as of right now, uh, you know, there's not going to be a Republican trifecta there. So no one to appoint conservative Supreme Court justices, although we have three from Trump at the moment. Um, so, you know, I think both parties are trying to take the wins out of this, but I think that looking at it from an outside perspective, no one is quite a winner and no one's entirely a loser. It was a bit of a draw and it sets a very interesting stage for future elections, uh, if I'm being honest. But I think if we want to understand where future elections are going, we have to understand what happened in this one transitioning a little bit. I'm looking at this map of the House of Representatives, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more about the Senate coming up here in just a little bit, but I want to lead us into some news that's been happening over the, the past couple of days. So Republicans were able to flip a pretty good amount of seats, and they're not done yet. So just to give uh, us some context, they have flipped two seats in Florida, one in South Carolina, one in Michigan, one in Iowa, one in Minnesota, one in Oklahoma, one in New Mexico. And there are probably more that are going to be coming potentially out of Utah, another one potentially out of Iowa, some out of New York, and a bunch in California. So it could be a substantial gain for Republicans in the House, but the cost for that Republican gain has been these moderate Democrats who flipped a lot of these seats from red to blue in 2018. So just to give us a little bit of context, recently the surviving Democrats, the ones who made it through re-election in 2020, um, had a conference call, all the Democrats, and there was a little bit of drama between the progressive side, so the AOCs, the Congresswoman Omar, Congresswoman Tlaib's of the world, and the Congresswoman Spamburgers of the world, the ones who are from Republican-leaning districts, um, that are more difficult for Democrats to pick up and retain. So just to give a little bit of context, Congresswoman Spanberger, who flipped a very conservative, strong uh, Republican district in 2018, was mad because, I mean, I, I think y'all were looking at those results the same time I was. For a couple days there, she was 20,000 votes behind the Republican challenger. And I can only imagine for her, that must've been very frustrating. And she kind of let progressives have it on this conference call where she said that their messaging was all wrong. And 
the, the lingo that they were using, such as defund the police, was hurting moderate Dems and basically pointing the finger saying, you know, this messaging and the policies that you guys are pushing and using words like socialism and defund the police is hurting us in these conservative leaning districts. Um, Abigail Spamberger did end up pulling out the win in her district by a few thousand votes. So that's lucky. But I mean, I think that her political life flashed before her eyes and she definitely took it out on the progressives around her. So Nick Cam, I'm interested to hear what your assessment of this is. Yeah, I mean, first of all, Abigail Spanberger is wrong on every single count. She came within old. She came within two points of losing a district that's R plus six that President Trump won, a district that was so right wing they ousted the House Majority Leader Eric Cantor for strange Tea Partier Freedom Caucus Dave Brad. She lost that district, or sorry, she almost lost that district, but she still pulled out a win by two points. So again, she did not even lose. She had previously only won that district by a little under two points. So really she's about at her previous margin in a year with historic turnout on both sides. So in an R plus six district, that's gonna make things tricky. The, the simple fact of the matter is she can get upset about progressives all she wants. There's no evidence that any of this was hurting her campaign. There are plenty of uh, reasons to look at what happened and to say, well, that was going to be a tough race regardless. You won. You won by a larger margin than you did the first time. And this was an uphill battle for you from day one, even though you're the incumbent. So even though she can say, Oh, my, my opponent, it was uh, Nick Freitas is his name. Yep. He had linked Abigail Spanberger to defund the police, which is very funny to say that an ex-CIA agent <laughs> is for defunding the police. Uh, and she claimed that that hurt her. But at the end of the day, she won. She still won with a better margin than she had the first time. And she won in a year uh, for historic turnout on both sides in a district that President Trump won in 2016. So she can get upset at progressives all she wants, but it kind of just feels like she's pointing the finger when there are no fingers to point in this situation. I, 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 unless she has some evidence that this defund the police advertisement that Nick Freitas ran actually costed her support, it just feels like she's getting upset for the sake of getting upset. And I think the, the House Progressive, uh, Pro or Progressive Caucus uh, has long felt that they've been kind of disrespected by the uh, mainstream of the Democratic Party. And I think especially for some of the most progressive uh, individuals in Congress, they feel that even more with, you know, Nancy Pelosi, she pretty much had, what, what is it, a blacklist of uh, consulting firms that work with progressive challengers. So there's really no love lost here. And it just feels like Spanberger is is lashing out and getting angry when there's really no reason to. To be clear, though, I, I, I know Nick is about to jump in here. Just for clarification, the Republican Party also has that same policy about working with uh, consulting groups that work with challengers to their incumbents. So they will do they really? Blacklist. They do. They do. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a dual party thing. Nick? I was just going to say, I feel like this just shows kind of the larger divisions within the parties. I mean, I think it's 
for those who have been following politics, it's definitely somewhat evident. Um, like when you think about AOC, like when she first won her seat and was coming into office, like she was already sparring with Nancy Pelosi about things like policies and just like, you know, doing, doing the business of Congress in the way that Congress runs itself. And she was not necessarily willing to toe that line from the beginning, um, which is, I mean, that's how she ran her campaign and that's sort of her persona. And I definitely respect that. Um, but butting heads, it's, I think it's clear that it's a political party, yes, but there's a spectrum, right? Like from pretty far left to maybe more moderate in the center. And that plays itself out in interesting ways in a time when the, like the two party system is, is, has never been clear. And now I think both parties are probably gonna need to do a little soul searching because it's like, okay, Democrats ostensibly have the prize, right? They, they won the presidency, but just complete disaster in terms of house races, right? And I thought it was pretty notable that um, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee Chair, Sherry Bustos, she's not, she's stepping down. She's not going to um, seek to run for that position again. So it's like, it's clear that it's been a disappointing outcome for them. And whether you want to blame that on progressives, whether you want to blame that on really high Republican turnout, I, I, I can't tell you where the blame lies, but it's, I think it's clear that there's there's a lot of shifts that are going to have to happen moving forward in terms of party messaging on both sides. I think to me, above all else, um, what motivated Democrats defeat was just poor strategy. We saw a, a lot of candidates were not investing a whole lot into digital marketing, which by the way, is one of the strong suits of the Republican party and especially the Trump campaign is digital marketing. The Trump campaign was very smart between 2016 and this year and that they would create micro-targeted ads on social media. So it would look to appeal to like people of a certain race uh, with maybe like a certain financial background living in a very particular area. It would be like 30 to 40 year old uh, white women, uh, mothers who live in the Milwaukee suburbs. It would be things like that. And they would micro-target these ads and they would make slight adjustments to them depending on who they were targeting with the ad. The Democratic Party has not put nearly as much effort into um, digital marketing. The Democratic Party also uh, has some rather lackluster turnout the vote initiatives, especially when it comes to Latino voters, which a lot of people said is kind of what bit them in the butt in Florida. Um, you know, there are serious, I guess, logistical hurdles that need to be met. And I think to, to blame these outcomes on ideology when there are like, I would say pretty clear uh, tactical and again, logistical reasons why this didn't necessarily work out so great. Like, I think there is good reason to believe that there are kind of flaws in the way the Democratic Party approaches a campaign, Ideal, all ideology aside. So, I mean, I, I agree with what I'm hearing, and I don't think that entirely pointing the finger at the, the House progressives is fair. However, I think that some of the blame, look, at the end of the day, if a candidate loses, 
at the end of the day, it's that candidate's fault and they need to take responsibility for losing that race for whatever reason. Um, but also, I mean, I think there is something to be said about the fact, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to uh, Abigail Spamberger here. For people who are listening and aren't familiar with her, she's a congresswoman from central to southern Virginia. Her district covers that. So she, she has a southern district and a southern state. Um, which has in the past been far more conservative than it is today. But the southern portion of the state where she represents is still quite conservative, um, especially in comparison to the northern states like Maryland, uh, a little bit closer to it. Um, but just for a bit of context, another, another representative who lost was Congressman Joe Cunningham from South Carolina's first congressional district. And to, to be fully transparent, this was a super conservative district that Democrats probably didn't think they were really going to flip in 2018, but they did. Um, and then they actually thought they had a good chance at holding it. But the most effective attack that his Republican opponent, Nancy Mace, was making against him, um, she just tied him into the Democratic Party because uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman Omar, Congresswoman Tlaib, and Congresswoman Presley have such outsized influence in comparison to the rest of the Democratic freshmen now people think Democrat and they think five people, Nancy Pelosi, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Il, uh, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. I mean, I don't think people think about Joe Cunningham or the Abigail Spanbergers of the world. So when a Republican comes and says, Democrat Joe Cunningham, and she never just said his name, she always said Democrat Joe Cunningham, she knows what she's doing because the people's association with the Democrat Party, because of this messaging, is defund the police, is socialism, is this coastal quote-unquote elitism um, that, that Republicans have been nailing uh, to the Democratic Party. So I mean, if I were her, I would, I would probably be frustrated too. But it, Cam, you brought up a good point. Like she did win by a larger margin than she did in 2018. However, like I'd said a bit earlier, for the first few days there, she was substantially behind. In fact, I had sent both of you a text message being like, what the heck happened to Abigail Spanberger? I did not think she was going to get crushed this badly, and she was able to pull it out. Um, but imagine what she was feeling that night as results were coming in, and she was 30 points behind her Republican challenger. She probably thought she was toast. And then she wasn't. But so. And, and, and she wasn't in the end. But also when this call happened, I believe it was the day before yesterday at this point, I don't think her race had been officially called yet. So I mean, it could have swung in a direction. No, it was still pretty close. So she was probably extremely frustrated. And I don't blame her for wanting to point the finger. Do I think it's entirely fair to put the blame on progressives? No. And I also don't think that's what she's doing. I think she was more frustrated with the messaging of things like defund the police. And I think her exact quote was, I never want to hear socialism again. Um, was her yes she exact. did say that and I, I have news for you abigail i'm not gonna stop first of all uh second of all the uh, the this is something i think about because i do hear a lot of people say you know they the the image of the democratic party it's tied to the way people look at aoc or uh, ilhan omar rashida Tlaib, uh, ayana presley or all any, any other progressive member of the party bernie sanders and they say the idea is you draw that kind of association in people's minds and so they, they think Democrat and they think, oh, AOC, who I don't like. Most people can't uh, cogently articulate why they don't like AOC. Um, but that's, that's, a, that's, that's for another time. 
what I think though, what goes through my head is if it weren't them, it would just be someone else. Because think of all the enemies that have been cast uh, in, in politics on the Democratic side. You have crazy Bernie, you have uh, uh, you know, Pocahontas Elizabeth Warren, you have low energy Jeb, who's sorry, a Republican, but you know, you, you get the idea, all these, these nicknames, the belittling, the, the uh, demonization of, of opponents, we see it pretty rampantly. Um, sleepy Joe Biden, crooked Hillary Clinton, crazy Nancy Pelosi, sanctimonious James Comey, that's one of my favorite ones sanctimonious James Comey, pencil neck Adam Schiff. The list goes on and on, on and on and on. So quite frankly, when the Republican Party has been calling Democrats socialists and communists for decades, they called Obama a communist. They called him a Muslim Kenyan communist. Um, You know, if, if it wasn't AOC, if it wasn't Ilhan Omar, it would just be someone else. It would be someone else that they're calling a socialist. They called Joe Biden, you know, they call him like a Chinese puppet. That's ridiculous. The second presidential debate, there was like a 10 minute exchange where they were just both talking about how they're going to be mean to China. It was very amusing. And Xi Jinping did not appreciate it. Um, I just, I, 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 I understand that Abigail Spanberger is frustration. But given everything we know, it appears to me that frustration is pretty misplaced because um, I don't think that we can convincingly tie her close reelection bid to any of these issues that she was uh, upset about. Um, and so the, the nicest thing I can say to her is, well, Abigail, let's run a stronger campaign next time. Uh, although I would say keep, it, keep an eye on her seat. Keep an eye on her seat when the 2022 midterms come up because uh, my guess is that Republicans are licking their chops. Okay, Nick, you have anything you want to add to this discussion? I was just going to say, I think, Alex, you brought up a good point about, you know, the squad being the face of the party. And then it's it's also definitely true about how they managed to work Nancy Pelosi into it. Um, and I was just, the, what came immediately to my mind was my time in Grijalva's office where Honestly, people would call more to complain about Nancy Pelosi than Raul Grijalva. And it was like, I mean, you're calling your representative's office, right? Arizona's third district. And you're talking about Nancy Pelosi? Like, that just, I never understood it. And and I think now it's clear that that's just a product of, you know, strong messaging, whether it's from Trump or anyone else. But they painted her as, you know, rich, out of touch, you know, whatever, crazy Nancy Pelosi, whatever you, your, your choice insult is, but it, it has clearly stuck. Also, I mean, this is a side note, but one of my main interests is women in politics. I will just add, it, it, traditionally in American politics and politics and power in general, it's, uh, it usually has been easier for them to label women as, you know, evil, she's a witch she's the devil she's you know back then she was a witch and today she's she's, crazy she's this she's that now she's corrupt notice the five most villainized vilified people in the republican party are nancy pelosi alexandria ocasio cortez ilhan omar rashida Tlaib, and ayanna presley 
um, with a close six. Now I'm probably going. Oh, to Hillary Clinton. Her. Hillary Clinton. You can't leave her out. But like she's like she's like faded a little bit now, but they always bring her back in at some point. But basically, all of the most powerful. They love. They love beating that dead horse. And I would say the only man who gets half the flack that the women do is probably Adam Schiff. But also, he kind of just deserves it every time I see him. And maybe Joe Biden, just because now he's going to be the president. Yeah. But even still, I mean, they're going easy on him in comparison to what they did with uh, President Obama back in the day. And they've also pushed really hard to smear Kamala. Yeah. Okay. So before we move on to our uh, Senate postmortem, just to give people uh, a little bit of context about what we have left. We still have two Senate seats that are up that have not been decided. We're also waiting on official results in Alaska. We probably will not get those Alaska results for about a week or so, potentially more. Uh, Alaskan votes are notoriously difficult to count and wrangle up. I guess I want to butt in for one quick second. Do you think the independent has a chance? The left-leaning independent has a chance. Al Gross, you mean? Yes, Dr. Al Gross. Okay, yeah, I just want, yeah. Um, yes, but he will not win. Fair, he could win. Enough. He could conceivably win, but I don't think he will. And I'm looking at this vote right now. It's with 61% reporting, 62 to 32. So, I mean, at this point, that's going to be a hard margin to close. But, I mean, anything is possible, which I think we saw from Georgia and Pennsylvania this time around. Plus, Michigan Especially and with, with such a substantial number of outstanding, uh, outstanding mail-in ballots. Yeah. And the fact that mail-in ballots tend to even favor Democrats in red districts and red counties, just because Democrats are far more likely to vote by mail, uh, it is 100% possible that uh, Al Gross will win that seat. But not likely not likely so i mean let's just make an assumption that alaska goes for their incumbent senator dan sullivan um that puts it all on georgia and georgia has a runoff system because uh neither incumbents got 50 percent of the vote they have to go to a runoff so these are not going to be decided until january and the fate of the senate assuming also North Carolina is not officially in, but it would be very hard for Cal Cunningham to catch up to Senator Tom Tillis at this point. Um, so it is possible though. It, it's possible, very, very unlikely. Same it is that. unlikely that Biden will carry North Carolina. It is unlikely that Cal Cunningham will unseat Tom Tillis. However, it is still very much possible in the math when you look at similar trends in uh, voting margins. Uh, by mail-in ballots, uh, I would, even in, in my in life, that Tom Tillis wins North Carolina, and so does uh, the president. I, I I don't think the campaign is one bit worried about North Carolina, Georgia. I wouldn't bet my life, but <laughs> it's it's pretty likely that that's what's going to happen. And so just really quickly transitioning into these house races it was a great night for republican women who flipped to the majority of the seats that were flipped um eight seats were flipped and i believe six of them were from women and we still have more to come most of the seats in new york that are closely contested have not been called yet most of the seats in california that are closely contested have not been called yet so we are still waiting on quite a few results um, but it's looking like it's going to be a pretty good day for republicans so especially the ones that like you went on (laughs) there's only there's only one that one there were three i think oh excuse me no it was marjorie taylor green i thought lauren bobert was also into 
Yeah. And Marjorie Taylor Greene. So at least two. two. I think there were more. Than one. But there are at least two that I can think of. Two out of four. Both Republican women. Yeah. Congratulations, Republican women. You have two proud non-representatives in Congress now. Republicans may also be responsible. We're still waiting on results, but it seems incredibly likely at this point with 98% of results reporting for both of these districts that Republicans are going to be responsible, along with Democrats and up in Washington, um, are going to be responsible for the first three Korean women elected to Congress. Um, So that's a big step. Um, Also, Republicans have elected their first Native American woman to Congress, and Democrats have elected only the second Native Hawaiian to represent Hawaii and Hawaii's entire history as the United States with... uh, Congressman-elect Kai Kahili, who was elected to replace uh, Queen Tulsi Gabbard. So it it was a big night, um, especially for people of color. There are more Native Americans in Congress in this session than there ever have been before. I believe the number is six. Um, And it was a pretty big expansion for underrepresented groups in the House all around. So... That being said, let's get into the Senate post-mortem. We're gonna discuss four different states. Briefly, before we move on to our closing, we're gonna discuss Maine with Susan Collins, Iowa with Senator Joni Ernst, Arizona with the famed Senator Martha McSally. And uh, last but not least, we are going to be discussing Oh my gosh, how did I forget the fourth one? I feel like Rick Perry right now when he was up on the debate stage and he forgot the third uh, department he was going to abolish. We kind of joked about talking about Alabama. Mm. Poor Doug Jones. I feel bad for Doug Jones. Oh, I feel bad. Montana. We we're going to discuss Montana. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, like, it's kind of been relegated to a footnote. Um, Steve Bullock just railroaded by Steve Daines. Um, I mean, I was looking at polling up, up until the election. Um, most highly rated polls had them pretty close to neck and neck or with it anywhere from two to four percentage points of a margin. And Governor Bullock lost by 11 points. Like to me, that's, that's a slaughter. Um, I'll, I'll be honest though. This, I, I think this isn't just about uh, how good Republican turnout was. I think it was also about how hard it is to poll a state like Montana because it is a huge state. Uh, Size-wise, it is just very large. It's very mountainous, very rural. And so for a state like Montana, it can be really hard to get an accurate poll. So when you combine that with things such as extremely high Republican turnout, it makes sense that even a guy as well-liked as Steve Bullock, keeping in mind, he still won 45% of the vote, which was about five points ahead of Joe Biden. That's true. You know, even he wasn't going to win. You look at some of these counties in the middle of the state, which are small counties, but even then they go, you know, 80% to Steve Daines, 85%, 70% to Steve Daines. Um, And he was more like to begin with Steve Daines. It's not like he was, you know. It was like Montanans had a choice of two people that they liked. And also, I mean, I think, I think people underestimate the American voter the American voter understands that you can like someone for governor, but not like them for Senate with the understanding that even though Steve Bullock was a deeply moderate governor, he may still vote no on every single Republican Supreme Court nominee that comes past his desk. 
And so I think that has a factor to do with it. And I think that's why in states like Massachusetts and Vermont, you see Republican governors in like solidly, solidly blue states with full Democratic congressional delegations. I or also like, want to you know, throw um, it back to say he ran for president. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You might forget that, I but he, he ran for president back in the briefly, Democratic primaries. Briefly, but he did do it. Um, but now it's kind of an example of what you said, just like a, like a small example, is like Chris Sununu, who he yeah. ran, uh, he, he, he won about 52, 53% of the vote. He, he ran about even with Joe Biden in yeah. a state that Joe Biden won by seven points. It was a Republican slaughter on the, the federal and statewide level in New Hampshire, and he survived very easily. Also, he was well liked, and even then, the his reelection bid. New Hampshire, correct? What? Like the Sununus are a family name in New Hampshire as well. I think they've had a senator yeah. and governor before, so like that also helps your odds. I'm not big on the dynasties, but to each their own, I guess. His father was White House Chief of Staff under H.W. Bush. Oh wow! Chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party and the 75th Governor of New Hampshire. Wow. 75 governors. Wow, it's an old state. 75 governors as of 1983 to 1989. Oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, wow. I think they're on their 80-something now, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, I think that for Steve Bullock, it was, um, I guess he wasn't going to have John Hickenlooper's luck. Not everyone can run a failed presidential campaign and then run a successful Senate campaign. Oh, my gosh, I forgot about John Hickenlooper running for president. Jeez. Yep. John Hickenlooper had a big leg up, though, because he was running against a really weak incumbent in a very a state that I think we can almost safely call very. Well, just as a side note about Cory Gardner, Cory Gardner used to be a super strong candidate, and then I guess in the past two years he just kind of gave up. But I Cory mean, Gardner how- unseated an incumbent Democrat, didn't he? He did, and like he was a very smart politician at the time. But I mean. It's kind of, well, we're going to get to Arizona in a minute, but it's kind of the same conundrum that you get in with Senator McSally, where they were great candidates. They were A-listers, and then they ended up with a D-grade at best. So that being said, I think we should maybe stick to the West, and let's discuss Arizona next. Cam, you want to take us away on this one? So Arizona in the Senate race, we had Martha McSally, who was uh, appointed to her seat after losing the race for the other seat, the Democrat Kirsten Sinema. Kirsten Sinema was running to replace Jeff Flake, who had stepped down because of how much he hated Trump. That was a very close race that Sinema won by a hair, but she did win. And then when John McCain died, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, a Republican, appointed Martha McSally to that seat. And then the Democrats, in response, nominated Mark Kelly, former astronaut, uh, husband to former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. He was an incredibly strong candidate, Chance Martha had. She had already lost contentious election, and she was running against a Democrat who was so strong, he managed to, to sap off about 6% of the voters who voted for Donald Trump. So just to make that clear, of the people in Arizona who voted for Donald Trump, about 6% of them voted Mark Kelly for Senate instead of Martha McSally. He had, um, I'd say he very much has a, a, that sort of blue dog, middle of the road, moderate appeal, which is probably about appropriate for where Arizona is right now. 
know, even a guy like Mark Kelly, who's pretty moderate, he gets by with 51% of the vote. Neither Donald Trump nor Joe Biden has a majority of the vote in the state. It's a very moderate area that still has a lot of Republicans in it. And Mark Kelly was able to build that kind of appeal. Um, I, I kind of feel like it's because he went to space. And so he's like the hometown boy who went to space. Uh, but, you know, he was also a smart guy. He ran a really good campaign. Uh, he ran ads along with uh, Kirsten Sinema that were honestly pretty brutal in how they, they attacked Martha McSally. So she was a very vulnerable incumbent. And I'll be honest, I'm really not crushed lost because I, I, just, I just feel like it was, it was preordained almost. Uh, she didn't have a good track record of winning the state apart from her congressional district that she won twice, which then got flipped to a Democrat. I don't know, and I, I just, I, I'm not too familiar with how she ran her campaign, but it seems to me like there was not a whole lot of life in it. And it feels to me almost like Mark Kelly was just having fun running away with it, even though it turned out to be pretty close. I never really heard a whole lot of speculation that Martha McSally was going to come from behind and win or that she would have some powerhouse moment where she managed to beat him. It, it felt pretty straightforward. Like Mark Kelly's a really good candidate. Democrats are really motivating people to go out and vote this year. Martha McSally isn't necessarily that popular in her state, even among Republicans. Mark Kelly's probably going to walk away with this one. And he did. Good for you, Mark. Well done. There are... Uh... There's a bit of a history here. So aside from the fact that, you know, I'm a, I'm a Westerner, um, one of my first internships was with Senator McSally shortly after she was appointed, and I've been a big fan of hers for a long time. Um, just to give a little bit of background, so Senator McSally won her first election in the year 2014. Um, she flipped a seat from blue to red, a Tucson seat, which ironically was held by uh, Mark Kelly's wife, Gabrielle Giffords, um, about four years before Martha McSally took that seat. Um, there was another Democrat who was in between uh, uh, Congresswoman Giffords and Martha McSally, uh, but she did eventually flip that seat to red. And she held it in 2016 when she decided she was going to run for Senate. And let me just tell you, so here's the thing. When Republicans had Martha McSally, they're like, she is perfect. Um, at the time, she was a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus, so she was a moderate Republican. She worked across the aisle, which was just what her district needed. It was a very swing district. Each year, it could have gone in a different direction. The primary was brutal. She ran against Dr. Uh, Kelly Ward from Arizona and Joe Arpaio, two people who have deep, 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 deep roots in the state. This was 2018. By the time she got to the general election, she did manage to make it pretty safely to the general, but she had spent so much money defending herself. Uh, whereas Kirsten Sinema had pretty much no competition in the primary. She had a, a weak progressive challenge, but it wasn't anything that an Arizona uh, Democratic Party couldn't handle for her. Um, so by the time this came out, Martha was cash poor and that continued once she got appointed. So, you know, eventually she lost that seat. Then she went over and was appointed to the late Senator John McCain's seat. And Mark Kelly, man, he came out of nowhere. I mean, he came out of somewhere. People suspected he might space. run. He came out of space. Yeah, he came out of space. That doesn't help anyone's case. 
Um, and I don't use this word lightly, but he was the definition of a fundraising juggernaut. He outraised her in every single quarter by millions of dollars every time. So, you know, I'm sure she would have loved to run a more energetic campaign, but it's kind of hard when, you know, you're being drowned out by your a campaign opponent who, you know, was in space. Kind of hard to beat that. So, I mean, I don't know. It's it one was, thing. One thing I want to add. Yeah. Martha McSally is very much a traditional Republican politician, uh, which means I dislike her, but at least she's very polite <laughs> while I'm disliking her. Whereas the Trump world people, I find just absolutely repugnant because they're very rude and they do things that I dislike. Um, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't use the term rude. I don't think they're rude. Um, for Joe Arpaio, I'll absolutely. I'll, I'll use yeah, many words to describe yeah. Joe Arpaio. Okay, um, Joe Arpaio is different. But I, but you know, it, I actually, I, I met uh, uh, Dr. Ward, now State Chairman Ward, Chairwoman Ward. She was a she was a really lovely lady. I really liked her, and she's a friend of the gays, so I'm a big fan. She has some some strange beliefs about chemtrails, and it. it this could be a whole separate episode. I think there's a lot that can be said about the direction that the Arizona State GOP is going in and whether or not that's going to bode well for Republicans in the future. Mm. But it is important to, to circle back to Martha that she was running against two people who are very well liked in Trump world and that the attacks that she had to endure from her opponents appeared to do some damage where again, 6% of Trump voters in the state voted for Mark Kelly. It feels like she did leave a bit of a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Mm -hmm. Whether that was her own doing or her opponents, I couldn't tell you, but clearly the damage has been done. Nick? Harsh words to hear, right? As a former <laughs> McSallyite. He, he's not really pushing back on it. All right. Though. We were gonna go back to Maine, or do you have something else to say about Martha? Well, I'll just, I'll just very, very quickly in Martha's defense. Um, it's hard because in a state like Arizona, if you work too hard, and I mean, this kind of sounds counterintuitive, but you do too much outreach to the independents and you could alienate your Trump base, which is already distrusting of her because of that 2018 primary with uh, Dr. Ward and former Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Um, the independents didn't trust her because she used to be more of an independent appeal type of senator. And then she became something a little bit different when she came to the Senate. Um, so, I mean, she just, she had it rough. I, I do not envy her. And also, even if she had won in 2020, she would have had to run this race again in 2022. I mean, it just sucks. And so, you know, more power to Mark Kelly. Good luck in 22, Mark, in a, in a Republican swing year. Have fun in the Senate for two years when Megan McCain decides to make a run for it. Enjoy your, your year and a have half. Fun, have fun against the, the, the Republican Arizona monstrosity that is Joe Arpaio, Kelly Ward, and Megan McCain combined. <laughs> We'll leave that'll that one be, for two be, years. That will be a very interesting race to follow because it will have a lot of implications as to whether or not Democrats actually have staying power in Arizona. Yep. It's clear he's a well-liked guy, so he might be able to build up enough of an incumbent advantage to, to hold on to that seat. There's also no strong Republicans in the House in Arizona. They don't have a strong feeder, so unless Doug Ducey himself is going to run for the Senate, which he could, he's turned out in 22, 
Um, and I wouldn't even call it a given that he wins. Yeah. So, no, absolutely not. Okay, so Nick, um, I think we're going to discuss Maine next. Yeah, let me just drag you back east for a second. Um, I wanted to talk about Maine just because electorally, I think it's a really interesting state. Um, it's a very rural state. According to the 2010 U.S. Census, it was the most rural state, or that is to say the highest uh, percentage of people living in rural areas. Oh, really? What, what, yeah. what roughly 70%, I think? It was it was around 61, but I mean, those okay. numbers have probably changed since now, but by the time we yeah. get the results of the 2020 census, who knows when that'll be. And then also, of course, because Maine is one of just two states, the other being Nebraska, that splits their uh, electoral college votes. So most go to the candidate that wins the plurality of votes in the state. Uh, but then Maine and Nebraska give two votes to the winner of the popular vote in the states and then one to the winner in each congressional district. Um, so this actually, and, this turned out in a very disappointing way. What was that, Cam? I was going to say, don't forget, one of the very interesting points about the Maine Senate race is Maine now has ranked choice voting. So yes. it didn't end up coming into play here. But if Susan Collins's margin uh, had fallen under 50%, it would have enabled the instant runoff system in uh, their, their ranked choice voting. Um, I was really, I was really excited to see that in action, and honestly, a little bit disappointed that it didn't happen because I thought Sarah Gideon was was a stronger candidate than she ended up being. I mean, again, I fell victim to the to the foreshadowing of the polls, which ended up being obviously not true. Um, I thought, <laughs> polls, I thought she had a, I thought she had a fighting people thought. I I thought she had a fighting chance, and she conceded within a day of the election. I know. Night of. Yeah, I mean, night of, really? I think so. I thought it was. I, it was. Night. It was pretty. It was pretty quick. I, I, uh, just to, the polls overall weren't as off as people thought, but clearly in some races and in yes. some states they were exactly. not particularly accurate, and this is one where Sarah Gideon lost by about eight points, and it it looked like she was leading, so even in a state that Joe Biden won. It was clear that there was a lot of uh, split ticket voting between Joe Biden. Well, and clearly, Biden. because they they traded their so Nebraska went all red and then one congressional district went blue. Maine went all blue and then one congressional district went red. So you clearly have some split voting there. Um, Donald Trump got more votes than Sarah Gideon did. Also, I just want to say as a side note, I love that they break up their congressional districts into individual votes, and I think every single state should do the same. Or we could just get rid of the electoral or, college. Or we could just get rid of the electoral college. Okay. That's, that, no. Again, that's a different episode. <laughs> that's, a different, that's a different episode, but that's... Uh, Nick, I'm glad that we agree on that. No. Okay. Um, and I also just, I wanted to throw in, uh, Susan Collins was the only Republican Senate candidate that was not endorsed by Donald Trump. And so they hung her out to dry. Democrats really thought that, you know, they have this one in the bag and she came out swinging and she won. So here's, here's actually an important thing about that race is that Donald Trump may not have endorsed her, but one, I'm not sure that would have helped her. Seeing as Trump won overall, what was it, 43.4% in the state, I'm not convinced a Trump endorsement would have helped her. Clearly, he wasn't that popular in Maine. 
And the other thing is, um, this was this was really interesting. Is on the Amy Coney Barrett vote, Lisa Murkowski flipped. She ended up voting for Barrett. Susan Collins still voted against Barrett. And what was very telling is that Donald Trump didn't complain about it the next day. He didn't insult Susan Collins for voting with the Democrats on Amy Coney Barrett, which means that she had clear permission from the party at all levels to do that because they were trying to hold on to that seat. They were even- I mean, They knew they had the votes for Barrett anyway. They, they knew that they had to keep that seat and they knew that they needed to have Donald Trump in the exact right position to hold that seat, which was not dumping on Susan Collins because any attack on her could make her look bad. It could magnify criticism of her in all different ways, or it could even motivate some of the Trump people to vote for Sarah Gideon over her, uh, similar to a, a Kelly Ward, um, you know, Martha McSally effect. Um, but they also needed, basically they needed to keep him at bay without being nice to her, because if he's too nice to her, that's gonna annoy people because Donald Trump's not popular in the state. And he couldn't be too mean to her because if he magnifies criticism of Susan Collins, it would have imperiled her already difficult chances of winning. Because let's be very honest, Susan Collins may have won by a comfortable margin, but every single time she's up for re-election from here on out, um, it's it's not going to be easy and Democrats are going to keep pushing to unseat her. Granted, she's not particularly young, is she? She's 67. This is going to so be So she might only time. run maybe two more times. But well, I, well, I just want to say, she's the only person in Maine history, unless I'm incorrect, to be elected to a fifth term, including, yeah. including the legendary Senator Margaret Chase Smith and Olympia Snow, who are like two icons of, of moderate Republicans and particularly moderate women. Um, spoiler alert, I'm about to do a pretty bad Susan Collins accent. So if you don't want to hear that, then you might want to turn her away now. But to quote her, Mainers deserve an independent voice in Congress. And I want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden on his victory in Maine. Um, that was clearly very good. You guys can applaud now if you feel like it or not. Oh, thank you, Nick, for those small claps. My accent's usually better than that one, but I just ate some peanut butter, so it was a little bit marred. Um, I, would, I would just like to add that since Susan Collins' first election to the Senate, this has been her closest election. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she has skated by, and to be honest, I even thought she was a goner, but I think there's something- I, I did too, because it looked like the writing was on the wall, yeah. and then she managed to pull out a win. I think also because Maine is a hard state to poll, because as Nick said, is the most rural right, state in the country. Well, also, there, look, under tradition- Have you been to Maine? Have you ever been to Maine? Yes. Beautiful state. Beautiful. Beautiful oh, state, sure. but a lot of dirt roads out there. A lot of small little cabins in the woods and all that. Well, I mean, building off that, Cam, building off the fact, it's kind of, and I hate to say this because it's offensive, but it's kind of a weirdo state. I, I lump it in with like Vermont and stuff where they just kind of do weird stuff. And I think one of the weird things they do, Maine is a blue state by all intents and purposes. They haven't voted for a Republican president. You know, a Republican president has not gotten all of their electoral votes in quite some time. But they keep continually electing these moderate Republican women. It's a part of their DNA. 
And I think for them, Susan Collins might be emblematic of, you know, this, this institution that may no longer exist anymore. You know, the, the great, the, uh, the Senate is, you know, the opportunity and the place to debate policy. We know that they don't actually debate, they just grandstand with each other. But I think they like the idea of having, you know, this Republican woman who comes from a blue state and is the voice of reason for her party and for both parties. And I don't think that's how it is, but I think they, they like the, uh, they, they also like that Susan Collins is important in the Senate and is often a deciding vote. And I think they know that if Sarah Gideon were elected, she would just be another Democrat who would vote pretty much along party lines. And I think this is one very important thing to understand, and I can speak to this being from New England, is that there is a certain appeal uh, to the old school Northeast liberal Republican type, like a Rockefeller Republican, which is a lot of what Susan Collins is. And so even if that brand of Republican is having a harder and harder time winning in New England, uh, they are still winning Massachusetts, Republican governor. Vermont, Republican governor. New Hampshire, Republican governor. Maine, Republican senator. Clearly, it, the issue for Republicans is not that they can't win these states uh, uh, on some level. It's that the National Republican Party will never win these areas because the, the, the local Republican Party is detached from the National Republican Party. I, I like Chris Sununu, who won re-election pretty safely in New Hampshire. I don't even think he voted for Trump. I think he even said he wasn't voting for Trump. I think uh, I think Vermont's governor said he was voting for Biden. Like the the it's Sununu almost a separate a, party. He was a pretty close Trump ally, but I think he has broke with the with the party on a few key issues. I'm not sure S which exactly. Oh, Sununu, I thought he didn't like Trump. No, I, I might Trump's, be mixing up. Trump's actually, I believe, tried to talk Sununu into running for Shaheen's Senate seat in New Hampshire, but he wanted to stay governor, and I don't blame him. You know, I, I think that's kind of what the 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 main situation represents is the sort of last dying breath of the of the old school Northeast liberal Republican, the Rockefeller Republican, the sort of Isn't independent she the last centrist Republican representative from all of New England? Yes. I think she is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. New Hampshire's got there are no Republicans in the House from New England, and she's the only Republican senator from New England. Jared Golden in Maine flipped that seat in 2018. last cycle. Jared yeah. Golden, who leans progressive first... towards things like Medicare for All, held on to a congressional district that Trump won this year. Oh, bleh. and that was Maine's the weird first state. when he was first elected. That was the first person to be elected with ranked choice voting in Congress. Oh, really? Fun fact, yeah. I hate ranked choice. Stick with your vote and mean it. No, Massachusetts oh turned God. down ranked choice voting. Cam, I don't know if you you noticed this. I know it was about fifty-five forty-five, and my opinion. I was on very that surprised person. by that. It goes to show that if you don't have good enough marketing for a ballot question. Even in a quote-unquote progressive state, it won't pass. California also voted down ranked choice voting. California voted down uh, classifying Uber em uh, employees as employees instead of contractors. As they should. No, absolutely not. Oh, my God. Separate episode, but absolutely oh. not. 
Well, anyway, I, there's a there's a good. I, I, I think we gotta bring it back to the Senate here, boys. No. I think we're gonna bring it back to the Senate, yeah. but just really clearly, quick, this is a topic we can cover another day. Just really quickly, I will say there's a really interesting New York Times article, and I'll I'll send it your way that talks about how even though California is a liberal state, it has a history of voting libertarian to conservative especially on ballot initiatives because oh and i i I have lots of opinions on why they voted this way on that ballot question but again i think we'll have to cover that in a separate it would have destroyed our economy but i guess now is time to move on to iowa before we wrap up for the evening we've already been i didn't know paying workers would destroy the economy (laughs) We, we, we should have done iowa before we did maine that would have made more sense but celavi it's too late now okay so let's talk about Iowa really quickly. So we have here our silver-haired queen, Senator Joni Ernst, um, versus Teresa Greenfield, who was a businesswoman and a farmer. Um, this was a race that wasn't supposed to be close. And had pundits been talking about this race in July, it would have been an Ernst landslide. Um, but as September and October came around, Greenfield started leading pretty substantially and consistently in almost every poll. Um, and people were starting to get real worried because, I mean, Senator Ernst has been one of the leading women in the U.S. Senate on a number of issues. She sits on the Judiciary Committee. And also she is from a, uh, yeah, yeah, I know she's not a lawyer, but she sits on the Judiciary. That's okay, though. I like some mixed perspectives. Um, she I don't, I don't like Republican judiciary, <laughs> but that's okay. She uh, th- they needed they needed to put women on there after the whole uh, Brett Kavanaugh thing, so they put Marsha Blackburn and Joni Ernst on there. Joni so Ernst, much that I can one of the leaders of the party. She's been seen as you know the future. She's still quite young. I think she's only in her early fifties. Um, but this race was getting close, and it got a little bit closer when there was a large flub on the part of Senator Ernst, where during a debate question, and for anyone who doesn't know Iowa that well, it's a heavy agriculture state, they asked uh, Teresa Greenfield for the break-even price on a bushel of corn. And she answered correctly, I think to the exact cent. And then they asked Senator Ernst the break-even price on a uh, on uh, soybeans. Soybeans. Whatever whatever the units for soybeans are, a bushel of soybeans, I don't really know. Um, and she she was basically off by, I believe, like $5. So it was pretty substantially undercutting. Um, and obviously, in a state that's agriculture heavy, uh, that's a big hit. And then right after she you know, was like, oh, maybe I can't hear you. It seemed like there may have been some technical glitches, or maybe she was just class A acting. Who's to know? I wasn't in the room, so I can't say. Um, But this race was a nail biter, especially for those of us who were large fans of Senator Ernst, or for those who were fans of her Greenfield, who to her her credit seemed like a really nice lady. Um, uh, This was a close race, and this was one where both in Iowa and in Maine, the, the Democratic challengers employed a method, uh, a, an attack that I haven't seen used before. Um, Joni changed. Susan changed. It was this idea of, yeah, they used to be who you liked. You know, Joni used to be this humble pig farmer. Susan used to be this moderate Republican, but they've gone to Washington and they've changed. They forgot you. And that was Teresa Greenfield's main attack against Joni Ernst is she's become a DC insider. She no longer represents Iowa. 
Um, and in the end of the day, it didn't work. Joni Ernst won by a pretty substantial margin, which I think surprised a lot of people, except that- she won by about poll. six points. Yep, that Seltzer poll six was about right. It had Joni winning by about five points, and that was considered an outlier at the time, despite it being an A-plus poll. Um, but this was a super interesting race, and it was unexpected, so I'm excited to hear what you two have to say about it. I wonder, so I wasn't following this race particularly closely, I think in part because I'd assumed that Joni Ernst was safe for a while, and then honestly the soybean thing was genuinely damaging for her. Um, it looked like there came a point where she was vulnerable, and I just wonder, the whole Joni change thing, I wonder if that was... In Iowa, a state that relatively handily went to Donald Trump, went to Donald Trump 53 to 45. Yeah. So by a um, substantial margin. Yeah, by a good solid margin and slightly more than the Senate margin. It makes me wonder if Teresa Greenfield went for that messaging in an attempt to try to tap into a lot of the people who had voted for or who who either had voted for Trump or were going to vote for Trump again. And, well, to be honest, didn't appear to work. But there are some counties where um, Teresa Greenfield outperformed Joe Biden. Mm. If you look at a lot of rural counties in the state, such as Howard County, which had the biggest flip from Obama to Trump of any county in Iowa, Teresa Greenfield won 41% of the vote there. And Joe Biden won 36% of the vote there. So she was able to solidly run ahead of Joe Biden in a lot of um, more rural uh, parts of the state that Trump was capitalizing off of. But at the end of the day, she just, she just couldn't keep up. At the risk of sounding rude, I, I kind of wonder if the Democrats could have fielded a stronger candidate. Does that they sound tried. harsh? They tried. They tried to get Democratic freshman Cindy Axney, who represents that, that uh, I think, Des Moines or Cedar Rapids district, whatever, which, whatever the biggest city in Iowa is. Des Moines. They get her, and she said no. Then they, uh, they went to Abby Finnegauer, which RIP, because she lost her seat. Um, she also said no. And so then random Teresa Greenfield came out. But I, yeah, Nick, I think that's a pretty good question. Like she's kind of a rando to be running in a major, major Senate race like that. And she did well, but I wonder if a more polished politician might have done better. As far as I know, she hadn't held elected office before, right? And she ran for the House in 18, but she withdrew because her campaign like falsified signatures in order to qualify for the oh, House. Oh, yeah. It, it just, it kind of, I mean, that's all what leads me to think she's, she just wasn't necessarily the best person for the job, especially in a year like 2020, in which, you know, you got, you got to leave it all out on the field. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It's just, I, and she did do quite well, and I thought that she might win, but I don't think that this was necessarily you know, a year for a, uh, for a rando to be running. I mean, the stakes were, and I think, I think Democrats were frustrated by this up and down. And this is a question that applies to Georgia because they wanted Stacey Abrams to run for Senate. She said no. They wanted Beto O'Rourke to run again. He said no. Um, Chuck Schumer did get a couple of the candidates he wanted. He got John Hickenlooper, who was able to flip that seat, and he got Mark Kelly. So he was happy with those two. Um, but he 
also got Steve Bullock to finally run and Steve Bullock lost. So, I mean, at the end of the day, Chuck Schumer tried to get some more candidates and he wasn't able to get all the ones he wanted. And some of the ones that he did want still lost. Back in Iowa politics for a sec, do you know when is Chuck Grassley up for re-election? 2022. I wonder how that's going to go because he's been... He, he might this, step down. This too. is his seventh term he's right now. He's and he's 90s. president pro tempore of the Senate. And so he's, I think he's considered one of the, you know, the leading voices. And I have to wonder who's, who's going to gun for that seat. And to put it... To, just to be very blunt, if you've never looked at his Twitter, it's very clear that he writes his own tweets and he writes like a very old man. It's phenomenal. He, it's yeah, phenomenal. he'll write these really cryptic tweets about, and I quote, doing it in Dairy Queen bathrooms. <laughs> and I, I, I do wonder what he means by that. Um, so Chuck Grassley is a very strange man from Iowa. And it's considered up in the air whether or not he'll run for re-election, given the fact that he's 87 right now. I'm wondering if we could see Teresa Greenfield again. Is that, do you think that's in the cards? Or do you think Democrats are going to try she to She wouldn't a necessarily candidate? be a bad candidate, but to be honest, no, they're going to have to run someone stronger because the thing is the Republicans are going to have a leg up. The Republicans are going to have a leg up in 2022, and I think Democrats could take that seat if they really made a concerted effort for it, but they would have to run someone stronger than Teresa Green. We need an astronaut. We need an astronaut. We need it. Are there any astronauts from it's, Iowa? It's going to have to be someone who we don't know right now because, I mean, Democrats, the only person they have is Cindy Axney, so it could be Cindy Axney, but also- or, Cindy I mean, hey, Abby Finkenauer has nothing to do now. I mean, why not? What does she have to lose, genuinely? I mean, if she, That's true. It, she should have run for the seat, it was stupid of both her and Cindy Axney to not run for the seat this time around, in my opinion. I mean, I think politics belongs to people who are willing to be bold, and I think that either of them would have had a better chance to flip the seat than Teresa Greenfield. And I think that they both kind of screwed the pooch for their party on this one. And I mean, Abby in particular paid the price because now she doesn't even have a congressional seat to call home anymore. So so we'll see what happens with Iowa. It's going to be interesting. But I mean, 2022 is going to be a big... This year, there were like six close races, give or take. 2022, Ohio is up. North Carolina, Florida, Arizona, oh, right. Nevada... Name any swing state you can think of, and it's pretty much up there. There's another New Hampshire one up. Oh, and let's not forget, we're going to get some redistricting, baby. Yeah. No, I mean, that's going to shape how the House oh, for um, sure. looks, oh, and, and that could affect turnout and uh, results in the, in the midterm. By the way, because I live in Ohio, I just want to toss in my theory. I think Ohio is going to lose a seat, and then, honest to God, I think what the Republican legislature is going to do is I think they're going to go after Marcy Kaptur, who has a district in the northern part of the state that connects the blue part around Toledo to the blue part around Cleveland in an extremely thin line um, to make sure that uh, the rest of that blue territory can just be gobbled up by huge rural districts. Mm -hmm. um, Ohio is one of the most gerrymandered states in the country. Uh, so I think what they're going to do is they're just going to like gobble up her district and like split it uh, between a couple of the more rural districts 
so that they can then just take what used to be one of the four blue districts in Ohio and and cannibalize it for more red districts. I, I honestly think that's what they're going to do. That's my early guess. So just so we have an understanding of what we're dealing with in 2022, here are the, I'm just going to list the states where there's probable flips. There's an, a Senate election in Nevada, in Arizona, in Georgia, in Florida, in South Carolina, in North Carolina, in Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Iowa. And Florida, is that Rubio's seat? Yeah. Rubio's seat. Oh my God, General please, Rubio, for the love of God, up. vote Marco Rubio out. That would be Val so funny. I like it. I like Val I like it, Alex. I like it. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our first episode of Left, Right, Left. So not offensive, but definitely <laughs> we made it this far. We made it. We managed to talk uh, about all these races, and we only sounded terrible like 10% of the time. So I think... I think for a first episode. I think that was as good as we can hope for. Thank you to everyone who made it this far. We appreciate it. Thank you to everyone who made it this far. Thank you all for Um, coming, and we hope that you tune in next time to Left, Right, Left.